0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Deb Benton, for introducing me to our guest today, Nisha Dua, co-founder and general partner at BBG Ventures. BBG Ventures is an early stage fund backing big ideas that will reshape the way we live. One of the first episodes on this podcast was with BBG's other co-founder, Susan Lyon, who I'm very grateful for as well. She graciously accepted to come on the show without knowing who I was and when the podcast hadn't even released an episode. So very, very grateful for BBG and love this conversation with Nisha. Some of their investments include Zola, Blue Land, Real, and Zero Grocery. Nisha and I discussed the opportunities within health and wellness, climate-friendly consumption, and solving problems for the 99%. Without further ado, here's Nisha. Nisha, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. I have one question. I'll answer. I'm good. But do you have the best podcast voice? I think you might.
0: That's, you're you're way too kind, way too kind. Absolutely not, absolutely not. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Um, I know we were just talking about it. Susan Lyon was one of the first people on this podcast, and she also spoke at, uh, the first summit as well just very very grateful uh to her and and everything that you are are building at b b g and so excited to finally have you on it's it's i this should have been done long ago, so really excited to have you on me
1: too long time in the making
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. so what was your initial attraction to venture capital?
1: That's such a great question, particularly because v c is such like a hot shit kind of job right now, right? Like that every, am I allowed to say that on a podcast that everyone wants to get into? And it's so interesting to me because I think a lot of really great VCs sort of like found their way into VC. I'm not going to call myself great yet, but I just think it's interesting, right? That you sort of The majority of people in VC who are really successful didn't sort of come out of school and say, I want to be an investor. Um, And my path has been kind of similarly a sort of very windy path. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. I was at Bain as a management consultant. I ran strategy and operations for a media brand portfolio AOL. I launched my own startup built by girls. So I I could say that all my paths sort of ultimately really led me here. But what was pretty consistent, kind of, even when I was in high school, you know, as a waitress at a cafe all the way up until now, I've always been obsessed with this question at the consumer level, which is how do we make something better? Why do people do it this way? And, you know, the great thing about venture is it gives us the opportunity to take those day-to-day questions and apply them at scale. And when I think about that from a holistic perspective with what we're excited about at BBG, it's, you know, to have the opportunity to touch companies that are shifting paradigms, solving these big problems or these broken systems, that's what's really exciting to me because, venture capital kindles the future. And when we think about what world we want to live in, I think there's a study from 2015 done by two economists, which shows that something like 49% of all US public companies were backed by venture capital, and they represented like 57% of market cap. So if we want the opportunity to shape the world that we live in being able to find this sort of diverse group of founders who are ultimately going to be leading these companies that are driving value in america is i think just such an exciting opportunity
0: Totally. I think from your definition of venture capital and what it is, it's then, again, not surprising that it's such a hot shit industry and that there's so many people that want to get into it because they want to be at the forefront of what's new and exciting, especially, as you probably could guess, on the consumer level that we're particularly uh, interested in on. So how did you come to meet Susan line <laughs>
1: Great question. Susan and I have been together eight years. She's my longest relationship. But, you know, as I mentioned, sort of, I've had a pretty winding path. I've almost had kind of three different types of careers. I ran strategy and operations for the AOL brand group. It was a portfolio of about 40 different brands at the time, 1300 people. And Susan actually hired me into that job. I was her first hire back in 2013. You know, we, I interviewed from Australia. I, sorry, I mean, I came over and met her. And then we continued the interview process from Australia. And we immediately had this alignment on how we saw the consumer evolving, what she wanted to watch, what she wanted to read, what she wanted to buy, what platform she was on. And so we developed this really close working relationship over about the course of a year and a half. And we launched BBG in September of 2014, would you believe? We're about eight years old. And you know, fast forward today, she was my first boss in America. And now we're partners in BBG.
0: What were some of the changing trends, or what the consumer was looking for that that you kind of sensed uh, there was an opportunity in?
1: Yeah, so I think it's kind of on two sides, right? Both the consumer side and the and the founder side, and so. Um, m- Many of these numbers were there, they were just being overlooked. And frankly, I think they still are, right? We have this dominant consumer, primarily women driving 85% of spend or influencing at least. They're the major user of nearly every single mobile and social platform, Um, you know, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, uh, maybe not Reddit, but that's okay. And they were increasingly the early adopters, but they weren't being funded to build companies. We, We know the stats, right? to just over 2% to female only led companies. to male-female-led companies. But we had this new wave, particularly in 2013-14, where cloud storage, iOS, open source software was sort of dramatically lowering the cost of launching a startup and creating, I think, opportunities for different profiles of founders who'd come out of B-School, come out of industry and had maybe experienced a particular pain point that they wanted to solve. So, you know, our thesis was really that founders with these different backgrounds who intuitively understood the consumer they're building for would have a competitive advantage and that our operating backgrounds would give us unique access to founders building for consumers and i think mike that opportunity today has only gotten more profound so there's some really interest if you look at the census data for every generation when they were age seven to 22. I think it's in 1969, the generation that is now baby boomers were 80% white. In 2019, the generation that is Gen Z, as they were seven to 22, were 52% white. And now I'm gonna give you the real one, which is last year's census data from 2020 shows that people in America under the age of 18 are 53% non-white. So for the first time, the script has flipped. And I think that just says a huge amount about the type of founder that we can be funding who will have a really different understanding of what these rising generations of consumers will, will want and need.
0: It reminds me of a conversation I had with Sarah Kunst, who was saying about how investors invest in people that look like one another, uh, typically, right? That maybe have that connection there for whatever reason that look like one another. And so that could be ethnicity, that could be gender. And so because there aren't the, you know, population of investors is overwhelmingly white male. I mean, I think it's like, 95% ninety five percent or something or or just something really crazy that then uh, trickles down into uh, mostly the overwhelming majority of founders being white male who are actually backed with given all of this i mean do you see that there's like a tremendous opportunity in in venture as well, given how the changing demographics have changed. You said under 18, now it's uh, 53% non-white male. And yet there's still so many overly, the overall majority of of venture capitalists are male. Do you think that there's like an arbitrage opportunity there since there really isn't that much supply um, of capital and there's a lot more demand?
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, that's why we started the fund, right? We really felt like there was a white space and as such an opportunity for Alpha. If this group of founders are being overlooked, we can get in early and meet these founders from the earlier stage, be be there at the seed stage. And listen, venture is a long game. So I think, you know, it takes a little time to prove that out. But I think particularly in the last 18 months, the opportunity for Female founders is really being proven out when you think about just the sheer number of female led unicorns or female led companies that, are, that have gone public. Uh, so, everything from Bumble, we've seen gone public, Figs, 23andMe, companies like The Real Real, Eventbrite, Stitch Fix, there's just you know we're, we're really starting to see this flurry of activity and it is very much right in that seven to ten year timeline that we would have expected to see and you know in this past you know few months alone right between spring health tier maven modern health you also have this whole spate of companies moving into that sort of series d stage at very significant valuations um, all led by women So I think that that thesis is now being proven out in the data, which is really exciting to see.
0: No, that absolutely is. That absolutely is. And that's great too, that it's kind of trickling down as well and that it's not only... Uh, we're not seeing more diverse, uh, diverse founders in, um, being able to raise at the seed in Series A. But as you say, it's trickling down to the Series Ds of the world, even, even companies going public that are uh, led by um, women and also other minority groups of uh, founders. So that's that's amazing. That's amazing. Within consumer, and obviously consumer is massive, but how do you think about particular themes or, or, or do you think about particular themes?
1: We do. I mean, I think, you know, our broad focus is, and I've really touched on this, right, but the next generation of breakout companies that are going to define kind of the way innovation happens in America are going to be built by underestimated founders, but that we believe they will be solving big problems really for the 99%, right? And so we're really looking overall for companies that we think are sort of embracing the changes happening in society to drive this really sort of human-centred transformation in big arenas of the consumer economy, where there are these broken systems, big problems. So that can apply probably to a number of different categories. What we've highlighted, I think, primarily is health and well-being, the future of work and education climate-friendly consumption which is really an evolution of our commerce thesis from our first two farms and then also products and services for underserved consumers because i think what you can kind of see across each of those categories is that there are things that are not working in each of those categories that sort of demand a rethinking of um and that's kind of why we've really zeroed in in on those
0: no that's that's really helpful so within health and well-being what's an example of a company or even just a consumer pain point that you are that you are kind of zoned in on and and maybe looking for a solution or maybe you've backed for a solution
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest themes we're seeing or are excited about in health and well-being is the ability to have more solutions that are personalised or enable consumers to be proactive, proactive and preventative. So... One of the sub-themes in that is how can you use data to personalise products and services, whether it's for existing needs or future goals of a patient. So we started investing against that pretty early in our second fund with our investment in Spring Health, which I mentioned earlier. We were part of an all-female-led seed see uh, round, along with Rethink Health and Workbench um, and Spring is a precision mental health company that uses AI to match patients with the right care for them quickly and accurately and so that pain point is, is pretty sharp in mental health, which is you go through this real trial and error of trying to find the right therapist for you, right? You go see someone that a friend recommended and you're like, ah, oh, I hate that therapist. And then you go see another one and they're like, well, I'm an analyst, not really someone who's going to prescribe you medication. And you think I never want to do this again. So they have the largest database of mental health data, right? And they can match you with the right person for you. But I think there are many applications for that that are broad spread Um, if we think about chronic illness autoimmune disease and sort of the the trial and error that consumers go through on a day to day basis really just in a fight to be well it's happening in women's fertility as well, we just invested in this fund in a company called UVA, which is a biomarker company for women that's doing the first at home p-test that can analyse your hormones Tell you when the right time to get pregnant is by analyzing the p test from your smartphone at home. So bringing the lab into the home. So there, there are lots of different applications. I'm personally looking for one in the realm of gut health. If anyone's working on that problem, um, but but I think you know, sort of really looking at precision mental health as um, a, a big opportunity in the next few years.
0: No, and I appreciate that. That's um, that's amazing. How has COVID maybe changed any of your thoughts on your investment themes? Or has it changed any of your thoughts on your investment themes? Yeah,
1: it's, you know, I think we were bandying around a number of the investment themes that I mentioned earlier health and well being, climate friendly consumption, future of work and education, even, even before COVID. Um, I think, if anything, COVID really opened the way for us to double down on those arenas because I think what COVID did is it, it opened our eyes to where the breakages were in this crisis. And I think, you know, the for example, I talked about Fiverr and that's in the category of, you know, future of work and education. The inequity in the education system in terms of access to really great education, the at-home digital divide um, only was exacerbated, I think, during COVID. I think similarly, seeing people without insurance who'd maybe lost their jobs when it comes to healthcare during COVID was put into sharp focus. I think, you know, I'm skipping back to future of work, but opportunities for deskless workers in in a time of covid and and how we're making sure people like that have the ability to continue living, have funds to live, and or are growing and aren't left behind if they do have jobs in a remote work from home culture. We just invested in a company called Antil, which is building talent software for the deskless worker. So I I really think, you know, as many pandemics do, they shine the light on the cracks in the system um, and have really just I think, emboldened us to continue focus there. I would say the additional thing that's grown, and again, we were already starting to think about it, was just how sharply something like a pandemic, which is a global crisis, brings into focus another global crisis, and that is climate change. And so that really, I think, only made it clearer how important it is for us, particularly as a consumer fund that was very excited about commerce, how important it is to really be using that power for good. And so that we're really excited, I think, mostly about platforms and services that will enable consumer behaviour change when it comes to consumption that are in aid of getting to that you know, net zero target for the climate.
0: I know. I really appreciate that. So, COVID left the different themes that you focus on like exposed. It made it. It made it a lot more apparent. And I'd imagine as an investor overall, it since you were you know pretty early in a lot of these themes before, if 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 they did become exposed during COVID, that's in some ways for your portfolio like um um puts you in a good spot. Even though of course no one wishes that uh, a pandemic at all, um, absolutely devastating. How do you also I mean, given the current state of the market, where prices just—I think, as you alluded to earlier—are just exploding, how do you think about staying price disciplined in this current market?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think there seems to be a general consensus at the early stage, um, seed and A that the increase in prices at early stage is is really supported by the multiple expansion in public markets, um, you know, as as you move further up the line. And and I think that's true. But your question is the right one, which is like practically, what do you make of that? How do you operate as an investor? And, you know, it's true, right? We have a fund right now of a certain size that has a construction goal. And that involves number of bets and number of own and a percentage of ownership. Um, so, What we try to do is be both disciplined within that model, but opportunistic. And so when we're looking at companies outside our typical sort of seven and a half to 10% ownership, you know, that check size of 500 K to a million dollars, we'll think about making an exception to that rule where we can say, this is a market where we've got high conviction in the opportunity and the founder, um, we'll think about it where we believe we can be helpful partners to that founder. So are we, you know, really going to be able to be beside the founder at the earliest stages of company building to help them grow this into that opportunity that we see? Or in the case where we couldn't get our ownership target, right, which is where the hardest exceptions are to make, do we feel like we bring something unique to this syndicate that make the time spent worth it, even if we're not the lead or the co-lead? And we've, we've made a bunch of exceptions like that. And then I think, you know, additionally, are we values aligned with the founder? Is there a long-term relationship here that makes sense? Are they interested in being in a relationship with us? There's a, a lot of time spent on both both parts. And you know, I think there's there's a we're in a moment in time and this happens to varying degrees of amplification or at various volumes every few years. But There are a lot of founders, I think, who've been taught a script about raising and creating FOMO about timelines and price. And that can mean pushing a timeline where you don't get to know the founder. And certainly everyone has to be nimble in this market. But I think really trying to get to sort of What is meaningful for the founder to build here? Who are the types of people they want around the table? How thoughtful are they being about that? Versus, okay, I'm trying to sort of increase the valuation to a certain amount based on timing, based on sort of a script that I've been given. Maybe those founders aren't necessarily the right uh, place for us to be opportunistic.
0: Do you also think there's, in this current market, and there's a number of kind of Twitter threads upon this subject. We'd just love to kind of hear your, your perspective. Is there a bit of a case of like the haves versus have-nots where the haves are able to raise at extraordinary valuations? Maybe they're located in, you know, Silicon Valley or, or New York or, you know, the major markets, whereas there's also those that maybe don't have the right connections, don't really have like the track record maybe they need to, um, even though they might be uh, stellar founders.
1: COVID has probably exacerbated some of the systemic issues we have when it comes to disparities in funding. So your no matter your commitment to changing the profile of founder that you want to meet with and potentially invest in, you end up being back in these smaller networks, right, of people who look like you, who have the same background as you. And so your time gets spent with them, and as a result, your capital gets put into them. So I I do think it's true that when you then add sort of that COVID dynamic of Zoom and being out in the community a little less to this moment we have in time, which is... Yeah, I think the word frothy is overused and it's been used at a few other places in the cycle over the last five years. But when you've got a lot of capital in the market that needs to be deployed and timelines are shorter, it, it does mean that probably a lot of investors are not going out of their way to build newer relationships with, with founders who don't sit in their existing network.
0: What is one thing that you would change about venture capital?
1: I, right, I think maybe to the point we were just discussing, which is when you're in a moment like right now, and these timelines are compressed, and there's so much capital in the market. I, I saw this the the best tweet just now, which was something like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you've you've got you've got an interesting deck. You're eight times oversubscribed for your round, come come back to me when you've got some traction and you're 12 times oversubscribed, right? Like there's this, this new level of normal that is sort of like whipped up into a state of frenzy, I think. Um, and listen, that's the nature of, of social media and conversation and marketing and every fund needs to do that. Every investor and every founder does that to some degree. But I, I do think it's probably only exacerbating The dynamic you described about sort of how do we get uh capital to founders who are solving hard problems and are very qualified to do that and to do the work and the time spent on that versus getting consumed by the FOMO you know and I think it's it's it certainly is easy to see something boiling up within a group of investors through conversation whether that's IRL Twitter, by the way, versus spending the time as an investor to think about what are the hard questions I want to ask a founder that go beyond looking on their LinkedIn or the last company they worked at to say, does this founder exhibit sort of uh, grit and resilience? Have they had to overcome obstacles? What is their view of the world beyond just the one-page vision slide in a deck? And that does take time and hard work. And for some people, it is harder over Zoom, but, but you can do it. Um, so I, th- I think my answer will remain Twitter hype.
0: What is one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally?
1: Okay, so I'm not going to give you like a Trillion Dollar Coach or Ray Dalio Principles. All these books are really good, right? Like They're all really good. I'm going to go hopefully off piece. Susan and I actually both just read this book. It's called Lifespan. It's about ageing. It's by this guy David Sinclair who, shout out, happens to be Australian. But the precept of the book is that ageing is a disease and that actually we should be able to live maybe till we're 150. And we can talk about all the implications of that another time. The central thesis of it is that if we solve aging the disease and think about it as a disease rather than something that, we all, that just happens to all of us as a natural part of the human condition, we may in fact not have to solve all these other health conditions like cancer heart disease, diabetes, because we're not just improving our lifespan, but he's he's seeking to find solutions that improve our health span. And what I love about that is, it's it's kind of what I have referred to a couple of times, which is, you know, how is the, a founder's view of the world different? What is the paradigm shift that they're really seeking to make? And that is, as a venture investor, that is the sort of thinking that gets really exciting. And that's where the really big opportunities lie, particularly if we think about having impact on the world. The book that has changed me personally, and hopefully is still changing me because I think it's a work in progress, um, is this book called When Things Fall Apart. It's by Perma Chodron. She's a Buddhist monk. And the central thesis of this book, and is really very much part of Buddhism and to some degree Hinduism, is that everything in life comes together and then it falls apart again and then it comes together and then it falls apart again. And the sooner you can get comfortable with that, like comfortable with discomfort, the better off you are because in life there is no perfect state, no ultimate destination. Otherwise we're always like trying to reach that ideal of perfection. And we're constantly disappointed because there's always something that sort of comes along and shakes us up and forces us to kind of like throw our toys out of the cart. So I love that book because it applies to every part of your life, but it also applies to startups.
0: May I say, Nisha, you are very original. I don't think anyone else has mentioned these books. So you are very, very original here. Very original.
1: It could also mean I'm reading the wrong books. So I'll go back and listen to all your recommendations.
0: No, first of all, first of all, Lifespan. I I hadn't heard of it until now. So I definitely want to check that out. When Things Fall Apart, that is on my list because Seth Godin um, mentioned it as one of his favorites on Tim Ferriss's podcast. And ever since, um, and I think echoing a lot of the, the sentiments that you just said, but it sounds like a fantastic read and um, cer- certainly for personal development. So, um, and I definitely need, I always need uh, help on that front. So, so, so I'm definitely going to do that. So that's great. Um, my final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for a founder who's currently building?
1: So I think my advice is always return to your North Star. So whenever you're planning or whenever you're in the midst of building and things feel frenzied, they're getting messy, or even if you're missing your targets, uh, particularly as your company is growing, I think it's really helpful to always be anchored on your North Star and ask Are the dozens of things I personally or my team and their team are spending their time on are in service of that goal or that North Star. And if they aren't, strip them away. If they're not in service of the overall mission or at least that, you know, first piece of that overall, you know, often we talk about the wedge into the market, if they're not in service of that, strip them away. I mean, you know, a consultant might say, oh, that's just 80-20, maybe. But I, I think that, you know, so many founders get lost in the list of things they have to do and that's how they lose focus and and i think we we all do that a little bit whatever business we're building or whatever business unit we're building and so i really encourage founders to continue to anchor their whether it's their yearly goals their quarterly goals uh the priorities they have their teams on uh, to look back to that north star and to actually do that with their teams, because that helps teach your teams and your direct reports to be focused on on the same sort of like what does success look like
0: um, as you are. Nisha, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun.
1: Yeah, I had a great time chatting with you, Mike, and excited to to you know learn who all your next guests are and keep listening too
0: really appreciate that thank you thank you again and there you have it it was such a pleasure chatting with nisha i highly recommend following her on twitter at niche 67 that's n-i-s-h-6-7 if you enjoyed this episode i'd love it if you'd write a review on the apple Podcasts. you're also welcome to follow me your host mike on twitter at mike gelb and also follow for episode announcements at consumer vc thanks for listening everyone